Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks to do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff and the fact that it's invisible means it worked. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, I am Sam Fry, and this is Technique, the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. Following the last couple of episodes where we spoke to a variety of artists, today we are back to just one although it is a good one. Today's interview has been working as a media artist, curator and theorist for over two decades. The artist is Patrick Lichty. Patrick is currently an assistant professor at Zayed University in the United Arab Emirates. As an artist, he has been a member of a number of activist groups, including the Yes Men and Artmark, who he joined back in 1997. Throughout this time, his work has often responded to the trends of technology and wider society, which he has responded to using a range of media, from paint to glass, video, internet art, and artificial intelligence. I will let Patrick introduce himself shortly, but before I do, I should warn you that the audio for this episode is not the best and includes quite a lot of background noise on Patrick's side. Saying that, the conversation is really interesting, so I was keen to still publish the episode, but I understand that some people will find the audio a little hard to listen to. So please have a listen and see how you get along. In my view, it's really worth the listen. In which case, I'm going to start by handing over to Patrick, where he begins by introducing himself. My name is Patrick Lutti. I'm, I guess, what you would call uh, an intermedia-based new media artist. I've been doing this for about 30 years. Conceptually, what I do is I deal with the idea of mediation, what happens when you throw things through the, the dark lens of technology. I've been involved in a lot of activist groups like the Yes Men and Artmark and another group called Haymarket Riot. Also, I've been part of a performance art group in Second Life for about 15 years called Second Front that has done about 50 different performances. And on my own, I'm usually what you would call an emerging genres media artist. And what does that mean? I'm usually you know, looking at what's happening in art and technology and using you know, new forms. Right now, I'm doing a lot of work in artificial intelligence. But I was trained as a painter and, and glass artist. And, but I also went to school for electrical engineering as well. And I started doing watercolors in the late 1980s and went through print to video to internet art and just you know have just kept ex- exploring this boundary between um, traditional and technological art a lot of what i've done is video art and a lot of it using basically um 
plotters and what I call machine processes to process paintings and redo them as, as machine-drawn, really intricate machine-drawn pieces. And then lately, what I've been doing is that I've been, I did 512 calligraphy pieces on my iPad and I fed it into a artificial intelligence system. And through two or three distillations, I'm trying to literally find out the patterns that are going on inside my own head. Literally almost trying to use my consciousness as a medium in a visual sense. But anyway, in short, I'm a new media artist of about 30 years who's been through a lot of different changes, a lot of different media. You're in Abu Dhabi now. Where did you grow up? Because I, I don't sense an Abu Dhabi background. No, no, no. I'm, I'm pretty clearly an American. I grew up actually in Akron, Ohio, and then North Canton, Ohio. First, you know, the, the home of the, the punk band Devo. And it's kind of funny that in my post-bac days when I did some classwork, I went to Kent State where the student shootings had been 20 years previous. And the town that I grew up most of my life was North Canton, Ohio, where, where Hoovers were made. So that kind of gives you a strange context on things. And then my father got me an Atari 800 computer in 1979. And... You know, they said, oh, you need to go to uh, computer engineering school, which I did. But the one thing that my parents didn't see is that I was drawing and doing music on it. So about a couple years afterwards and a few years in the engineering field, I I quit and started my own art and design studio, which I'd been studying on my own in the during the 80s. And there really, really weren't any schools to learn that, you know. Yeah, I started exhibiting and doing corporate design work, you know, basically from a self-taught perspective. That design school. So what were you doing there? What's uh, What were you setting up? Well, my mother was an artist and she basically taught me. And I was raised on science fiction. And I, at first I wanted to be an industrial designer who would eventually be a um, special effects artist in, in the movies. And when I found out that the program nearby me shut down, I, I basically wound up getting involved in, in fine art and then in the end, what I was doing is I was doing a lot of graphic design and I was already showing my, my artwork. And it was very interesting is that in the early 90s that there were a lot of online communities of contemporary artists who were working in this thing at the time, you know, that was going to become new media. And I became involved with them and really kind of became from Canton, Ohio, a virtual New York artist. And I was working in digital print and video and, you know, emergent, what I call, what I call now emerging genres. You know, I never really went to school for it. And the thing is, is that most of the people from my generation didn't either. And after a lot of exhibiting in a lot of international venues, I realized that I wanted to become an academic. I had realized that I, I needed an academic background. So I did go through graduate school and a computer art degree in, in America and actually got in on strength of portfolio. Did three years as a MFA student and came out and I became I became an art professor. So that almost feeds into one of your other questions that you're talking to me about like what's one of the biggest challenges that I've had as an artist. I'd kind of say that really in the 1990s, it was much easier to support yourself in your studio because of the fact that 
hourly rates for graphic and interactive design you know, were much, much higher than after 2000 and when they started getting outsourced to other countries. So I was working about half-time as an interactive designer and then exhibiting a lot. And then, But the thing is, is that I realized that in the early 2000s that that situation became increasingly precarious. So I realized that I, I needed to become an academic or to get really serious about having a professional studio. And at that time, I wasn't sure that that was going to be entirely possible. So I really just thought that being an academic was much more feasible. And because of my track record, I went immediately into a tenure track position and kind of went forward from there. And that has really been kind of my you know, solution to the stability thing. I think also another challenge in being in, in technology and arts is really kind of surfing along with a culture that is constantly in flux. And the thing is, is that two things have happened. On one hand, you know, there really wasn't any funding, not, not much support. And, you know, we were getting by as, as we could on non-institutional support in the 1990s. And then with some of the biennials picking up new media in around 2000, academic programs started springing up and you had a lot more people coming in. And actually, one thing that happened is that contemporary art really is much more about kind of the ecosystem of objects, you know, and new media isn't so much about that. It's more about experiences. And and so technologically based art shifted much more towards contemporary, I think, in the mid-2000s. And I think that was a big challenge to deal with. And I think that's, you know, why I started going much more into, like, machine drawings and video art and 3D sculptures and and matters like that. You know, I think, as Kandinsky said, you know, art is a product of its time. And I think that that's reflected by any artist's practice, really. Can you tell a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing and, and I'd love to find out more about this idea of using AI to understand your own thought processes. So for about the last three or four years I've been doing a lot of things in augmented reality, virtual reality and AI. We don't quite have the time to you know kind of go through all of that but I'll, I'll kind of say that there's a couple projects that I'm doing right now. I'll say first of all in Abu Dhabi you know, our lockdown has been significant. I mean, this is the COVID era, right? And there was this one point where I was kind of limited to about two, three kilometers from where I was at. And it almost makes you a little bit mad sometimes, you know. And so I was walking around. But there was a very interesting thing is that with my tools or sometimes just the technologies that are around me. And there was this app for my cell phone called Displayland that allowed you to do 3D scans of the environments you were in. And this is what I wound up doing. I wound up doing 3D scans of making 3D models of, you know, the places I was at, the construction sites, the courtyard to the, you know, pool next to my apartment or the the park nearby, the library. And so what happens is that they were giving me these really strange videos. And I've been working with an Italian curator here, Giuseppe Moscatello, who's been wanting me to turn this into a more formal project. He says, can we make this more interactive? And can we, you know, deliver it on the web? And I basically wound up discovering ways to render the 3D models that Displayland was making and go through them using basically VR-based real estate software, you know. And this sounds really corny, but the thing is, is that in doing this, going all over the 
UAE, you know, as, as the restrictions let up, I was able to go to the Louvre and scan it. And yeah, I guess I do live near the Abu Dhabi Louvre. And so the thing is, is that I just kind of found these fractured landscapes that I've been part of. And so the, the interactive uh, experience is going to be at something called Nation 2.0 in a couple weeks. But stills from this have been in a couple of shows like At a Distance 4.0 and New Digital Collage. The other thing that I've been doing is that for about two years now, literally, I've been working with my iPad and Japanese is my second language. And so I've been working with doing Japanese calligraphy, but in an asemic way. In other words, a way that it isn't really saying anything. A friend of mine named Jim Leftwich uh, came up with this idea of asemic language. It was like non-semantic language. And so I've been doing these asemic calligraphies in the Japanese style for about two years. I finished 512 of them. And then the one thing that these things called generative adversarial networks, which was used for that one piece by the obvious group, you know, called the Portrait of Edmund Bellamy, they threw like 14,000, 15,000 portraits over like 500 years and saw what they came out. They, they deal with patterns. So I said, okay, I'm going to take these 512, I'm going to take 256 of these and put 256 in and see what the patterns are from one and take 256 of those, set them aside and do that with another 256, take the patterns, set those aside. Then I'm going to run those adversarially against each other and hopefully seeing that the patterns can't cancel out and just see, you know, really what from a neurological perspective, you know, kind of like what my, what my habitual patterns are. And then maybe then that reveals from a cognitive perspective, what my creative sensibilities are. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm literally trying to decode my own creative sensibilities by taking AI, feeding it through, looking at the patterns, and then cross-checking two sets of patterns to see what's left and seeing whether there are literal patterns in my in the gestures of my mark-making. I call it personal taxonomies that basically represent a deep structure of what my head does when I create. I mean, literally using almost say, almost saying like, what's the fingerprint of my consciousness, you know, when I when I create this work? And one of two things, I think this is either pointing towards bridge between neuroscience and cognitive science, or I am chasing my tail in the most absolutely spectacular way that you could ever imagine. And I hope that's just entertaining. taken the style of Japanese writing. Have you seen any results? I've been sharing some of those on my Instagram at patlichty, P-A-T-L-I-C-H-T-Y. And on my Facebook, I just shared one of the uh, animations that I've been doing from some one of the trials. And basically what I work with is that I've been working with a couple of groups. One is a guy named Ahmed Algamal and his company Playform, which is basically my AI platform that I've been working with to generate these because of the fact that I tried working, you know, with code, with things like PyTorch and all these sorts of things. But I mean, really what happens, there are just times in which when you're just sitting down and just banging out a whole bunch of code and just trying to work out things out of down in a computer science perspective, which is doable. But the thing is, is that, you know, sometimes you just, you get so in the weeds 
you know, with the, with the computer science that it starts canceling out your creative process. So the thing is, Ahmed and his group have been really good with helping me with sorting this out. And this has been sort of feeding into another group that myself and my uh, my partner, Keen uh, um, at the Sabian, have been working with called Techspressionism. It's basically, you know, we're a group that are looking at the idea of the extension of the um, expressionist tradition, you know, through the use of technology. And that, that can be anything from pointing towards technology or, in this case, looking at, you know, the affective relation of the artist with technology like I'm doing and... So these have been two groups that have been really great to work with, and I'm really kind of in the process of launching this this body of work over the over this year. What's funny is in a lot of worlds, people are quite fearful of AI because they see it as a an opportunity to automate something that might be someone's current job. I guess you're you're purposefully trying to automate yourself trying to go well all right maybe i don't need to do these anymore maybe i'll let the computer do it yeah here's the thing is that if you think about it here here's a good story is that when i was in a exhibition I, i'd won some prize and we we sat down for some coffee and said tell me what program you use and i said all right i'll tell you what program you use if you tell me which paintbrush and oils you use and I'm just saying that on one hand, we can say that anything beyond finger painting is an abstraction of human gesture. In other words, a paint and oils is a technology. You know, and so what happens is that how do we as human beings use an apparatus to express our own creative vision? And the thing is, is that, sure, there are people out there that do a, a lot of button mashing. You know, I mean, honestly, you know, it's like, okay, sure, you can go out and use a, use a neural net or you can use a Photoshop filter and that sort of thing. And I mean, how creative or not, you know, I, I think really in this, in this day and age, it's really about having your work match up with your intention. I mean, if you're really trying to make a piece of work, you know, beyond that, I really don't judge people beyond beyond that i mean i know what i'm trying to do with my work and you know what other people are trying to do with their work is fine but really what's happening here is that i have questions about my humanity about my existence about what it means to be an artist i'm a i'm a technological native so i use these tools to sort of test my own questions you know against myself through these experiments and I know that I have an interesting dialogue in going through these on my own, but I hope that other people see what I'm, I'm revealing through these processes and that I share with others. You know, I, I think there's a lot, a lot to be said about asking questions of technology. Kind of like McLuhan, I'm a native of it, but I don't always, I think some things about technology are fantastic. I think some things about technology, I'm, I utterly question. You know, I'm quite agnostic. But what happens is, is that I think the thing that is important is the interest in asking these questions as an artist. Definitely. It comes back to that, that point you made earlier, the, the quote of you know, art reflecting the time you're in. And actually, people are asking they're asking questions about technology and in in general 
I think a lot of people, I mean, I work for a technology company. I, I ask questions about the technology that we're building, I guess the, the ethics of things that we're building. I think there's, you know, there's always, always questions like that. But also I think more and more people looking at, well, how can I train my mind to do this better? And how can I, how can I improve this about my, my ways of thinking? Your experiments, your, your, your conducting, your, your own investigations, the questions that you're trying to answer do relate to that, that world we're in. The one thing that I think is very interesting is the idea of, you know, what they call solutionism. In other words, the idea that everything somehow can be reduced to these problems that we can somehow try to find solutions for and somehow either find solutions to our humanity or efficiencies or, or whatnot. And the thing is, is that sometimes I don't think that there's necessarily a solution to humanity. Yeah, I, I think that there are things that are ineffable qualities about the human experience that can't necessarily be reduced to a design solution. You know, the questions that are posed by things like like philosophy and, and ethics and uh, aesthetics, and we're messy, squishy beings, <laughs> and, you know, and we're, we're not machines. I, I actually did this one piece that uh, was when I, when I interacted with a bunch of rovers with sumi brushes and that sort of thing, little three-wheeled rovers that went across a, a 21 by 7 foot landscape uh, piece. I called it man-machine interface. And the thing is, I was putting barriers that I'd put up in front of these things. And, you know, I'd move them around and I'd watch how these things were going. And this, to me, was a great metaphor for what the human condition in the technological age. In other words, what's where does the line between the, the human and the technology, and I'm not necessarily saying machine, is. You know, it's what what happens between our knowledge as human beings and our application of that knowledge if we're to take a strict reading of technology as being the application of applied knowledge. And how does that relate to us as creative individuals, really? And how can we learn more about culture by doing these creative explorations through the use of applied knowledge as a, as a creative tool? Maybe I'm getting a little philosophical. (laughs) What's next for you? Well, one challenge is readapting to becoming an American again. My family's uh, moving back to America next year. And so we're settling in and I'm settling into a mass communication program at Winona State and, you know, and but still working with Zide University back and forth. I'm not exactly sure how much my home country has changed. I hear it's changed a lot <laughs> in the last five years. <laughs> you know, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how much culture shock I've had versus the culture shock of moving to Arabia. That might be fun. And then the thing is, is that then I'm really thinking about in my working with these these technologies, AR, VR, a, you know, AR, and that sort of thing. Is that I'm really thinking about maybe looking at mixing a study of history because I've been very interested in the telecommunications arts of the late 70s and the early 80s and that sort of thing. I actually have all the equipment as well. So, you know, basically, I think what I'm, I think what I'm really interested in what the next steps are is to be, once again, asking those questions about maybe where have we been and where are we going and putting them together in in an applied fashion, you know, through the practice of my art. And, and also I write a lot. So I've written for a lot of magazines, including like Canvas and 
Harper's, uh, Harper's Bazaar and things like that. So it's sort of like, and I curate. So in other words, doing these things, doing my writing, curation, and also my practice as an artist, trying to see where humanity is going, you know, in this, in this really, really, you know, now hyper-changing world that we're in. And I think we're in an era in which I think these conversations are really needed. Time and again to pile stone upon stone Unbalance these scales Now I'm trying again I can finally see the reason it fails If you're heavy then you'll never set That was Patrick Ligty. His work is really interesting and he was a fascinating person to speak to. So I'm grateful to him for making the time to speak to us on Technique. If you are interested in finding out more about his work, this is how you can find him. Really where I'm most active in regards to my work at the moment is on my Instagram account at P-A-T-L-I-C-H-T-Y. A redesign of my website is coming up at patrickrichty.com in about in a couple weeks. And then also my archive is at voyd.com, which is a bit scattered, and I have a YouTube channel at, at Pat, Pat Lichty, and I'm pretty Googleable. Thanks again to Patrick for being interviewed for this episode. Thank you also for listening, and if you've made it to this part, for sticking with the background noise. I'm sure you'll agree that it was well worth it. This was episode 48 of the podcast, and we are looking forward to some exciting changes when we get to episode 50, so keep an eye out for those. To make sure that you don't miss any episodes, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also follow us on Twitter at Technique UK or on Instagram on Technique Podcast. We will, of course, be back again next month with another episode. In the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.